Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Municipal and state governments have a lot of costs to consider with or without the pandemic. Today, we talk about the state's waste crisis. When you wheel your trash bin to the curb, you expect it to be emptied, but have you thought about where all that trash goes? For many years, more than four dozen towns had their waste processed at the Materials, Innovation and Recycling Authority, or Mira Trash to Energy Plant in Hartford. But that plant is closing in 2022. That means tons of trash could be trucked out of state, and that will be costly. And not many other Connecticut facilities exist to recycle that waste, especially food waste. Today we'll talk about this and more with Katie Dykes, Connecticut's Commissioner of Energy and Environmental Protection, or it's also known as DEEP. Do you have a question for Connecticut's top environmental official? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, before we talk to Commissioner Dykes, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on this date. It's been eight years since 20 children and six educators were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. And as a parent and a Connecticut resident, I know I will never forget that day. And I want to acknowledge the pain and the grief that persists today from that tragedy. So again, as I mentioned, we're welcoming the State Commissioner of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection on the show today, Katie Dykes. Commissioner Dykes joins us on Zoom. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Lucy. It's great to be with you. Uh, so I mentioned the Mira Trash to Energy plant uh, at the top of the show, and this has has uh, taken the garbage from the greater Hartford region for many years. Our listeners may know that it's a plant that's been aging. Uh, there's been outages in the last few years. And I understand that under the Malloy administration, uh, there was a bid uh, to help to redevelop this plant. Uh, and to do that, uh, the Mira plant was asking for subsidies from the state. But earlier this year, you sent them a letter denying that request and writing in part, quote, it represents a false choice and a bad deal for taxpayers across the state, Hartford residents, and the environment. So tell us more about uh, your stance on this. And what does that mean now for all of the trash that was headed to the Mira plant? Well, thanks, Lucy. First off, I just want to say how important it is for us to be talking about the silent waste crisis that Connecticut is facing. You know, it's really important at this moment for everyone to know, um, not just in the Hartford area, but across the state, what's happening, uh, the pressure that we're going to see on municipal budgets or local taxes or pro- program cuts if we don't take action. And <laughs> my favorite part, the sustainable solutions um, like collecting food scraps and increasing recycling and unit-based pricing that can help us to avoid this crisis um, and uh, improve our quality of life and uh, the quality of the environment if we act now to embrace them. And, you know, so just to put the Mira facility into context, Lucy, our state uh, throws away about 2.4 million tons of municipal solid waste every year. So that's about 750 pounds 
per person. And about 88% of that material that we throw away is burned at five waste energy plants that are located across the state. These plants, you know, incinerate the garbage and they produce steam that's used to generate electricity. And, you know, a, a couple decades ago, um, this was a, a, a major solution uh, for another environmental challenge that we had in our state, which was we have a lot of municipal landfills that were polluting our waterways and generating greenhouse gases. And so um, communities came together with the state to build these waste energy facilities um, to help enable us to move beyond and, and close local landfills um, that were burdening nearby communities. Um, so these waste energy facilities have played a really critical role in enabling our state to you know, be self-sufficient and how we manage disposal of our waste. Um, and uh, they're, they're really critical because they handle so much of this material, right? Um, but we also know that they uh, have impacts on local communities where they're located in terms of air pollution. Um, and many of these waste energy facilities, like the Mira facility in Hartford, they're aging and they've become more expensive to operate. And so that's really the, the challenging spot that we've come to is that the Mira facility um, you know, at, at present um, requires more than $300 million um, in uh, investment support um, in order for that facility to be refurbished. And those are just dollars um, that we don't have. And I think that from the administration's perspective, if we're going to be making an investment of that magnitude, you know, we really need to think hard about what we're investing in. Um, not necessarily the, the technology of a couple of decades ago, but new solutions and sustainable solutions um, that are available, that are proven to work in other jurisdictions, um, and that can have better outcomes for uh, and the health of our communities and our environment and long-term for uh, the costs of, of uh, managing our waste here in the state. Uh, a listener tweeted that uh, this person said more than 30 years ago, I worked at the state authority that dealt with trash, which burned electricity for, for electricity and negotiated the establishment of Connecticut's first recycling facilities. Now Connecticut's sending its trash back to landfills and has given up on recycling. Is that what's going to happen, uh, Commissioner Dykes? That's what will happen if we don't take action, talk about this crisis and come together to, you know, seize those opportunities for better solutions that can move our state forward. And that's what we're doing right now. So this summer, uh, Deep reached out to municipalities across the state, inviting them to work together with us um, to investigate those solutions and tee up the best options that can move the state forward. We call that the Connecticut Coalition for Sustainable Materials Management. Lucy, I was, you know, I, I told our team that we at Deep that we'd be excited if we got, you know, 12 or, or maybe 20 towns to sign on. We got more than 74 municipalities um, that signed up into the coalition, large cities, small uh, rural towns uh, led by Republicans, led by Democrats. Um, it speaks to you know, how much our municipal leaders see this crisis coming, how it's impacting their budgets, and how, uh, frankly, enthusiastic they are about coming together with solutions that will help prevent Connecticut from taking steps backward um, towards reliance on landfilling to manage our waste. It's concerning because we've had um, the amount of waste that's being exported to landfills has more than quadrupled since 2013 from about 63,000 tons per year to 300,000 tons per year in 2018. And that's increasing. Uh, folks may, you know, as waste energy becomes more costly to operate, 
Um, it's more costly for towns to send their waste to waste energy facilities and landfilling, which was previously, you know, more expensive. And by the way, we're talking about landfills located outside the state of Connecticut. You know, so suddenly that's starting to look more affordable for some towns. But what we are seeing is that exporting to landfills out of state is not sustainable, either environmentally or financially. Between now and 2026, 20, we expect about 40% of the landfill capacity in the Northeast is going to close. And so Connecticut's waste will have to be transported farther and farther away to reach disposal sites, which increases costs and greenhouse gas emissions. You're hearing Katie Dykes. She's the state commissioner for the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. As we talk about, uh, she called it the silent waste crisis, where all of the state's garbage will go. Uh, again, the Mira trash plant going offline in 2022. And the fact that municipalities are going to have to be paying to truck this trash outside of the state to other landfills. So what is the solution, Commissioner Dykes? Can you talk specifically about when we think about comprehensive waste management, one of the ideas out there is pay as you throw. What does that mean? Well, you know, Lucy, we've been looking at uh, four different types of solutions um, uh, to manage our waste more sustainably. Uh, first, you have to kind of take a peek into the garbage bin and figure out what actually is getting thrown away. And the surprising thing is, you know, most of the material that it, we are sending for disposal um, is actually material that can be recycled or reused. And about 37% of the material that is going into trash bins around our state is organic material, like food scraps and yard waste and other materials, which can be composted at home, donated, um, processed into animal feed, uh, or sent to um, anaerobic digesters and composting facilities uh, to be repurposed into compost and to generate fuels like uh, electricity or renewable natural gas. So just right there, um, you know, we've seen tremendous enthusiasm from the municipalities we've been working with um, to uh, look to implement innovative programs that can help pull that really valuable material out of the waste stream and get it to anaerobic digesters and other infrastructure um, that, you know, where it can be reused in a positive way. Um, so that's a huge opportunity. And again, if we can pull that percent of material right out of the waste stream, then it helps to reduce our reliance on landfilling on the remaining waste energy facilities in the state. And it's better, um, it's cheaper to send uh, organic material to an anaerobic digester than it is to send it for disposal. Um, so that's one example of the type of solution that we've been looking at. Uh, we've also been looking at solutions around increasing recycling. Um, another uh, large percentage of the uh, material that uh, is, you know, we find in, in the in the uh, trash uh, trash bins um, is material that could be recycled. Um, we have a great track record in our state of high recycling rates. Um, and there's more paper, plastic, metal, and glass um, that's being disposed of that that could be uh, diverted for recycling. So that's another really important place uh, for us to continue to make mm -hmm. progress. And then finally, so um, yep, go ahead. I just wanted to break that down a little bit more. So you, you talked about food waste, and I understand that mm -hmm. there's been a law in Connecticut for some time uh, where uh, there would be uh, businesses that could recycle that food waste. But what has happened with that process? I think our colleague Patrick Scahill reported that law went into effect back in 2011, but I think there's just one producer that's, that's doing that. Uh, why haven't there mm -hmm. been more incentives to get more businesses online to recycle this food waste, Commissioner? 
Mm -hmm. Well, we're really excited um, about uh, working in 2021 on uh, a, a whole comprehensive approach to driving investment in anaerobic digesters and composting facilities. And, you know, we have a lot of the pieces of the puzzle to get that infrastructure deployed, but we haven't really put those puzzle pieces together effectively um, in recent years. So here's how we're gonna bring all those pieces together, Lucy. First, we want to strengthen um, the diversion requirement for large commercial generators um, who, you know, uh, like food manufacturers or, um, or uh, you know, large uh, cafeterias or other types who generate a lot of food waste, uh, we can help save them money by connecting them to uh, places that they can send their organic waste instead of disposing of it. Um, and then, you know, by securing that valuable waste stream of organic material, um, that sends the signal to investors in anaerobic digesters and other um, facilities like that. Uh, that there's going to be waste for them to, uh, an organic material for them um, if they build uh, these facilities in the state. We need to make sure the state, the facilities are located, um, you know, strategically around the state um, so that uh, folks who would be sending waste to them don't have to transport it um, a far distance. And DEEP has a really uh, important and impactful role to play here too in streamlining the permitting um, for anaerobic digesters, both on farm and uh, um, uh, grid scale anaerobic digesters, um, as well as uh, we have authority to uh, run competitive procurements for uh, power purchase agreements, um, or uh, we're seeking authority for renewable natural gas purchase agreements for these digesters, um, which helps provide them more certainty of revenue. So when you bring all of those pieces together, um, we know that uh, we can improve on previous efforts to help scale up this uh, really important infrastructure um, around the state to make organics diversion from the waste stream a reality in the state. So I'm really um, very excited about what this can mean for helping to transition our state, not taking steps backward towards landfilling, but steps forward um, towards more sustainable choices that will be better for our economy. So that's that's food waste. But what about just recycling in general, uh, Commissioner Dykes? I mean, we know that uh, the market has collapsed. China hasn't been taking uh, the U.S. recycling for some time. Uh, single stream is what everyone thinks about. But the idea that it needs to be, you know, going back to the, the individual and, and having to separate this and, and where does it all end up? Can you talk about that? You bet. So there's a lot of success uh, in our recycling programs across the state that we can build on. Um, certainly there have been, you know, some changes in the commodity cost for recycled materials um, that, you know, have gotten a lot of attention over recent years. But this is, again, very valuable material. And we're seeing a lot of um, changes in the recycling markets, uh, including um, companies that can repurpose um, this recycled material starting to locate um, here in our state. For example, we have a major manufacturer that's going to be uh, recycling glass material. Um, that's uh, uh, just, they're just cutting a ribbon and, and beaking 
Beacon Falls um, this week. It's really exciting to see them coming forward. Uh, recycled content standards can help, again, drive those end markets for uh, recycled material. Um, there's a whole lot of work that we can do here. But some of it comes down to investing in our recycling programs, um, education and uh, promotion and, and materials, uh, staffing for recycling promotion at, at schools and in, in towns, um, investing in recycling coordinators um, to really help people learn how to recycle, not just the quantity, but we want quality as well. Um, so, you know, that's a really important part of a successful recycling program um, in the state is ensuring that we are investing in those programs. And mm -hmm. so, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about in this process um, is how to make sure that we have that kind of funding um, to invest in sustainable choices, just the same way that we uh, invest in our disposal infrastructure in the mm -hmm. state. Again, my guest is Commissioner Katie Dykes. She is the Commissioner of the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We need to head to a, a quick break, uh, Commissioner. But, you know, I, I started the show talking about how this trash to energy plan is set to close in 2022. The clock is ticking. I mean, what needs to happen in the next several months uh, to help municipalities and the state deal with these impending costs? We have a host of recommendations that we're going to be releasing on Wednesday through the Connecticut Coalition for Sustainable Materials Management. Um, many of them are things that municipalities uh, can do in, uh, individually or working together as region. We have things that DEEP is committing to do, everything from uh, streamlining our permitting um, processes to, again, helping to drive investment in anaerobic digestion. And there are a number of legislative options um, that are in this list. We're really looking forward to engaging with legislative leaders about the kinds of tools that we need um, to scale up sustainable alternatives um, and help to solve this waste crisis. So we're really looking forward to bringing those forward um, in, in, the, in the next couple of days and, and jumpstarting that conversation for the legislative session mm -hmm. next year. Again, that's Katie Dykes, the Commissioner of the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Katie Dykes, Commissioner of the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Do you have a question for her? She's the state's top environmental official. The number to join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, we just talked about one of the challenges before Connecticut, and that's the waste crisis. But we also need to think, uh, Commissioner Dykes, about our residents and their concerns about global warming on our state, uh, pollutants, uh, reducing uh, transportation-related carbon emissions. And I wanted to talk with you about fossil fuels. Uh, earlier this year, you were at a Trinity College Connecticut League of Conservation Voters Summit, uh, where you told the audience that you believe the state should move away from natural gas, uh, saying, quote, natural gas is not a bridge fuel, it's a fossil fuel. And that's a reference to under the Malloy administration seeing, uh, again, um, natural gas expansion as a 
bridge fuels, so to speak. And, and so I wanted to talk more with you about, you know, what your priorities are uh, after saying that and how the state can move forward with reducing our, our uh, fossil fuel dependence. Well, thanks, Lucy. I have never been more hopeful and positive about our opportunities to uh, tackle the climate crisis, uh, both here in Connecticut and uh, at the national level um, than I am today. And in part, that's reflecting the hard work and involvement that we've had from hundreds of stakeholders and experts um, in our Governor's Council on Climate Change process that's been underway uh, during this pandemic. We're going to be delivering to Governor Lamont in January um, a very long list of near-term actions that the state can undertake uh, to help reduce carbon emissions um, and also prepare and protect our communities from, especially vulnerable communities, from the impacts of climate change. Uh, this is really, really important work, and I'm excited about what this means. We have made a lot of progress in reducing carbon emissions from our electric grid um, through development of renewable resources, investment in energy efficiency, one of our most important resources. Um, and we're very well on our way, actually, to meeting a goal that Governor Lamont called for, which is to achieve a 100% zero carbon electric grid by 2040. Uh, more than 50% of our electric supply um, is, you know, uh, reflected by investments, um, including investments um, in solar and, and other resources that have been made to date. So we're going to be releasing a draft integrated resource plan this week um, that maps out ways that the state can feasibly achieve a 100% zero carbon electric grid. But the transportation sector you mentioned is now um, about 40% nearly of our greenhouse gas emissions in the state. And uh, we have really important opportunities ahead of us um, to help crank down the carbon emissions that are coming out of uh, internal combustion engines, out of our transportation system uh, by making investments in that area. So we're really excited mm -hmm. um, about the opportunities to tackle that as well. And by the way, huge benefits that that will have, not just for uh, just slowing down climate change, also for improving air quality and uh, reducing asthma rates and, and helping um, support families across the state that are struggling uh, with poor air quality. Uh, Commissioner, you've also uh, talked about how uh, Connecticut should consider to withdrawing from the regional power grid, that's ISO mm -hmm. New England, um, saying that uh, it lacks leadership to, to cut fossil fuel use. Uh, again, their policies are driving larger investments in natural gas and pipelines and power plants instead of investing in renewable energy. Can you talk more what that would look like uh, for Connecticut sure. to withdraw yes. from this power grid? Of course. So Connecticut, we are about 25% share of a regional electric grid that we share with the rest of New England. And, um, you know, as we look to how to reduce fossil fuel use, um, whether that's coal or oil or natural gas um, that's, that's emitting greenhouse gases, we have to tackle this at the regional level and by reforming um, the regional electricity market uh, that we rely on for our energy supply. The ICE in New England um, is the regional grid operator uh, that operates this grid and designs this market. And it's very, very frustrating that the way that they have designed this market includes 
um, putting the finger on the scale for natural grass power plants, which end up disproportionately being uh, built and located here in the state of Connecticut. We are now a net exporter of electricity generation um, here in Connecticut, hosting this generation for the benefit of the rest of the region. But there are um, a number of different things that the ISO New England has been doing in recent years um, that explicitly favor natural gas over um, other clean energy resources that, um, that the states prefer uh, and have uh, legislative mandates to uh, implement. Um, the ISO has also been building barriers, erecting barriers to their market um, to prevent clean energy resources that states are investing in uh, from getting credited or counted in the ISO New England market. So, you know, as we have highlighted these challenges and Connecticut has been litigating and advocating at the ICE New England for years to address these things, it's been incredibly frustrating to see the lack of responsiveness in, in months past. But, um, you know, Lucy, what we've discovered is that we're not alone. This October, uh, Governor Lamont joined with four other New England governors um, in issuing a call for reforms to the ICE New England wholesale energy market, to the way they plan transmission, and frankly, to the, the way that they conduct their business um, to improve transparency and accountability to consumers. And uh, we are now engaged in a uh, six-state effort um, to join together and map out a new course for how we can get these markets working for our consumers with more affordable and reliable power um, that is uh, achieving our climate uh, and clean energy mm. goals. I'm really I'm excited you... about what this means mm. going forward. Commissioner, I'm glad that you brought up uh, what's happening in our region, uh, because I understand that Connecticut's the only uh, state in our region building a new natural gas facility. I'm talking about the Killingly uh, Natural Gas-Fueled Power Plant. Uh, I believe that's still going forward. There are residents and environmental groups asking the governor to stop these plans. Oh, does this contradict the you and, and the governor's goals to cut carbon emissions? Uh, why not halt this project? Well, again, Lucy, what we've been saying is that we have to address this at a system-wide, on a system-wide basis. Um, you know, that the plant is still going through a permitting review and um, and, and other milestones. Um, so, so those are underway. But I, I will say that, uh, you know, we, if, if we uh, uh, halted a, a plant, a, a brand new plant here in Connecticut, uh, we'll, if we don't reform, without reforming the ICE in New England market, we're just going to see um, older, dirtier fossil fuel power plants running more. We're going to see more fossil fuel power plants um, in other states increasing their generation. So I hear the calls and I understand um, the concerns that people have had about uh, this particular power plant. I know that to respond to those concerns and actually reduce carbon emissions across the, across the region um, in, a, in a real way, in an impactful way, we have to go to the source. We have to, to change the, the market rules and the preferences that are built into the ice New England market to turn off the tap um, and to, you know, essentially uh, redirect the investment that's coming from that massive market um, to clean resources that are actually helping to achieve um, our clean energy goals. That's mm -hmm. what we have to focus on. Um, otherwise, you know, we, we, we may find ourselves um, uh, enabling that market to uh, have 
older, you know, dirtier power plants, by the way, located in a lot of environmental justice communities, um, running more and polluting more. So we have to take a systemic approach. And one of the most important things that we can do, one of the most impactful things we can do um, is drive investment in more uh, zero carbon renewable resources. So for example, um, the investment that Governor Lamont has uh, sponsored in offshore wind, um, you know, signing contracts uh, that, uh, with um, uh, uh, offshore wind projects, um, the, the Park City uh, wind project that Vineyard Wind is developing, um, that coupled with earlier offshore wind investments will mean that 20% of Connecticut's energy supply uh, will be sourced from that clean renewable resource by the mid-2020s. And the more that the, we do that, the more that those uh, offshore wind uh, and other renewable resources are uh, developed, the less those fossil fuel units, old and new, um, will be generating in our state. That's how we help to, uh, again, address this systemically and see more fossil fuel units shutting down over time. Again, you've been listening uh, to Where We Live with uh, the State Commissioner of the uh, State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, Katie Dykes. We'd love to have you back, Commissioner Dykes, to talk specifically about uh, more solar and wind projects uh, in our state as we talk more about the need for uh, investing in renewable energy. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. Really appreciate the, the opportunity to be with you. Again, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from some environmental groups about uh, the state's priorities. But first, this week is our end of the year fundraising campaign. We talk about a lot of topics on where we live. You hear from people like our state commissioners, our governor, and Connecticut residents all over our state. Please support where we live and Connecticut Public Radio with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from Katie Dykes, Connecticut's Commissioner of the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. We wanted to get response from environmental groups and activists in our state. Joining us now on the phone, Sharon Lewis, Executive Director of the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice. Sharon, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Also with us, Adrian Huck, co-founder of the New Haven Climate Movement's Youth Action Team. Hi, Adrian. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with Sharon. Uh, we started the conversation talking about the Mira plant. This is something your organization, the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice, has been working on for years, especially when we think about pollution to uh, nearby communities. What has been your reaction now that the Mira plant is slated to close in 2022? Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Total elation, celebration, excitement, uh, sort of a bittersweet moments because we're looking forward to having folks uh, eliminate a lot of the chronic illnesses that they have uh, that came directly from being exposed to incinerator pollution. We're just mm -hmm. elated. When you talk about some of the health uh, conditions, so asthma, high rates of asthma in the communities around that plant? Oh, definitely high rates of asthma and uh, many other uh, respiratory diseases. Uh, we have uh, lung cancer, which is also involved, uh, COPD, um, respiratory issues like uh, uh, cardiovascular diseases, um, anything respiratory, uh, uh, some types of lung cancer, just it's it's a terrible mix of, of respiratory illnesses, which devastate um, one's um, health. Mm. 
Mm. So when we think about this trash energy plant closing, it it, it leads to other concerns, including uh, trash uh, going to landfills, which we know landfills in communities, uh, just like the ones we're talking about. And so what is the solution from your group standpoint of what, what needs to happen uh, now that this plant is closing? Well, first of all, we don't espouse landfilling. In fact, we mm. oppose landfilling and incineration. And for the state to uh, have to send the state's trash to landfill, landfills anywhere else but Connecticut is another environmental injustice. Mm. We'd rather have Connecticut folks focus on reducing the amount of materials that they waste, reducing what they send to landfills so that there would never be a community exposed to the adverse health effects that comes from either the leachate from the landfills or pollution from the stacks. When we think about composting and recycling, it's not always easy in, in particular areas. When we're talking about urban areas, what are some of the, the challenges uh, with getting people to recycle or even w- depending on where they are living, uh, you know, mixing things up, uh, ruining the, the recycling and the waste that you, that you want to separate from the, to begin with? Well, let me just first correct you. A lot of people assume that urban people do not recycle. Urban people Uh, and low-income people invented recycling. I do not know of a single person who hasn't had something they no longer use, who hasn't picked up a telephone and called someone to say, can you use this? Uh, What you do find on the streets and some areas is truly garbage, something that no one else can use. Conversely, you drive through the more affluent areas and all you see good things on the streets stuff that people just don't like the color of anymore. People are renovating their homes. They'll put stuff on the streets. And if people don't pick it up, it comes straight to Hartford to be burned. Mm. What about compact posting? I guess that's what I was mostly talking about, this idea of composting, which we heard from the commissioner. Well, there are lots of people who do composting. And also another uh, misconception is, especially folks who come from rural areas in the South who are used to farming, Uh, One of the misconceptions is a lot of people are introducing urban farming to urban folks. But a lot of urban folks have been farming their entire lives. And unbeknownst to a lot of folks, these people still have pieces of land in suburban areas where they continue to grow their own vegetables. Um, Composting is another thing that I grew up with um, in Windsor, Connecticut. I mean, separating uh, the organics and composting was just something that we did as a matter of course. Um, so uh, I know there are some challenges in urban areas because if you're living in a building with multi-units, there's no space on the grounds for you to have a composting area. If you're living mm-hmm. in a two-family or three-family house that doesn't belong to you, sometimes the landlords don't want that because it, it, it causes issues with you know cleanliness, with breeding of uh, vectors and, and rodents. So, you know, it it is better to do the composting in suburban areas. Mm. And so I guess the the question being that the people need to provide support to help people do it. If it's composting, it might be an issue in a particular area or getting suppliers uh, to come in and find ways uh, to take uh, these materials just to help the residents. uh. Absolutely. I mean, I think the best way to do it when it comes to urban areas is to have people turn over their organics to Mm. other folks to do the composting because it's never going to be consistent in urban areas. 
there you're never going to have a massive buy-in from the landlords or property owners to say it's okay to do composting on my property so uh, <laughs> unless you own your own piece of land it's it's difficult mm-hmm. to do this consistently and as all of us know composting tits don't really look that good they don't smell that well. And you know, most people, I would not want someone next door to me to have one if they weren't doing it properly. You're hearing Sharon Lewis, Executive Director of the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice. As we talk more about some environmental priorities that communities want to see uh, in our neighborhoods. Also joining us, Adrian Huck, as I mentioned, co-founder of the New Haven Climate Movement's Youth Action Team. Uh, Adrian, as you hear the commissioner talking about priorities uh, and from your group standpoint, what do you want to see the state uh, pursue? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, um, my team at New Haven Climate Movement isn't directly involved in the battle with the Mira facility, but I did want to bring up mm. just my own views about that. Um, definitely agree with what has been brought up. Um, turning Mira into a transfer facility and transferring our waste to other communities is not a solution. And really, we have to act very quickly to find a solution by the time that the facility is phased out by 2022. So I propose that Connecticut looks for uh, methods to reduce our waste up front. I'm not sure if I support a pay-as-you-throw program just from an equity standpoint, but I do know that 32% of Connecticut's waste is food waste and other organics. And I think that Connecticut can ban this from the waste stream, as Vermont has done, and instead invest in large-scale composting and anaerobic digestion facilities. Um, It's been actually successful in the New Haven and Hartford area. There are two programs, which I know of, that collect um, food waste curbside um, and as we approach the end of the Mira incinerator's lifetime, it makes sense to work towards developing these new and cleaner facilities to divert a major part of Connecticut's waste material. And I think other mm-hmm. options outside of large-scale composting could be bold recycling reforms, incentivizing recycling, and better educating residents about it, and even passing an updated bottle bill. So there's so many ways that we can start, um, but the main thing is that we really just do need to start <laughs> Mm. How has the pandemic uh, really impacted uh, these efforts? I was thinking to the plastic bag ban, but then during the pandemic, uh, you know, having uh, grocery store workers and others uh, dealing with reusable bags, uh, the state had suspended that for a few months. And so I'm just curious, uh, Adrian, your thoughts on, you know, moving forward as we have so many priorities in front of us. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, as a climate organizer, this has been a very big roadblock. And as you were saying, like even with plastic bags, something that we very just recently had enacted a ban on was rolled back mm-hmm. for, um, for the pandemic. And we can see that even mirrored on a national scale, um, big polluter companies being allowed to emit more and taking those regulations off during the pandemic to make it easier for businesses. So there's definitely mirroring going on there. And with our efforts, um, we've definitely had to adapt to a virtual space for our organizing. Um, we can't, you know, really protest too much in person. So we do need to find ways to work around it. Um, but definitely, for example, with, um, With New Haven, our team helped declare a climate emergency in the city in 2019, um, which would uh, ask the city to get to zero emissions by 2030. And already a whole year has passed and the pandemic came up and there hasn't really been much action on even the first steps of meeting that goal. So definitely it feels like we've almost lost a whole year of climate action. Um, But definitely there's so many ways that people and organizers are showing up and still um, pushing to get this work done. 
Mm. Sharon Lewis, what about you? When we think about uh, moving forward and while we're still in a pandemic, uh, what should be some priorities moving forward? When we think about also the impact of climate change. Well, there's a couple of things I'm thinking about. Um, I'm very concerned about the fact that this administration has refused to tighten air pollution standards mm-hmm. for particulate matter, which, as we all know, uh, mainly affects respiratory system. And, um, you know, there are numerous studies out right now that are revealing the degree to which particulate matter from pollution sources like incinerators influence disproportionate rates of COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths in environmental justice communities. So we're very concerned about that. Um, in addition, um, we are very, very um, um, interested in, well, concerned about the fact that most of the um, frontline workers are people who are low-income and communities of color who are exposed to coronavirus in everything they do. They are the Uber drivers. They're the Lyft drivers. They're the Instacart workers. They're being exposed, and they're bringing that home to their sometimes multi-generational families. So, you know, there's lots of economic issues involved here as well. Mm. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, bringing it back to Adrian as a young person, again, co-founder of the New Haven Climate Movement's Youth Action Team. Uh, you know, your final thoughts on, you know, seeing if, if the state is uh, pursuing uh, the right priorities uh, with the urgency that we know so many young people want to see happen. Yeah, so I've been talking about environment mostly, but I do want to bring it back to climate. Um, as a mm-hmm. climate organizer, I have my main focus on the climate crisis since climate change is truly the biggest threat we're facing as an environment and as people globally. And so what I think that Connecticut can be doing, um, first of all, no new fossil fuel infrastructure. We have to remember that natural gas is actually also a fossil fuel. It's not as clean as we're told it is, not as clean as it's marketed as. Um, and also Connecticut does have a plan of reaching 100% clean energy by 2040 and a plan for 45% Um, greenhouse gas reduction by 2030. Um, But something that we do push for at New Haven Climate Movement is a Connecticut Green New Deal, which essentially um, means bold climate action and equitable outcomes for marginalized communities. And so these goals are great, but the honest truth is that we are in a climate emergency and the time frame is very slim. And as a young person, it's, it's very daunting. We only have really until 2030 to act before there's mainly irreversible damage on climate change. And so some things that we can do, uh, my team at New Haven Climate Movement, like I had mentioned before, is having um, New Haven declare climate emergency and also New Britain has. um, But really, um, these cities both vowed to reach zero emissions by 2030, which is actually more of an aggressive goal than the state. So really, the bottom line is we we do need the state to step up. There are good goals that already, but they have to be Mm. more aggressive, I think. And really, we also have... um, Adrian, we want to thank you. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but you're co-founder of the New Haven Climate Movement's Youth Action Team. A lot of uh, great uh, points that you have raised. Also, Sharon Lewis, thank you, Executive Director of the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice. We appreciate your time as well. Uh, Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's our end-of-the-year fundraising campaign. Support Connecticut Public Radio. Here's the number to call.